Hi and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is with Tegan Higginbotham, who is an old friend of mine, a friend of the podcast, and she has recently transitioned out of comedy and into more presenting work, but particularly into novel writing. And she, we had a lovely chat about that, about that process, about identity, and about the much maligned genre fiction form that is romance novels. And I really enjoyed talking to her about it. I don't know if you know this about me, but my undergraduate honours thesis was about genre fiction and narrative rhetoric in genre fiction, which is the idea that the shape of a story tells you a story as much as the content of the story, like when a character appears almost tells you who they are and, and how genre fiction is sort of underrated the craftsmanship and the and and the talent because it's considered an easy form or a pleasurable form and there's some sort of weird idea that we have about the arts that if it's easy it must be bad anyway I'm not going to get into it now we had a really great chat I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed having it because I really did enjoy having it thank you everybody who's supporting me uh in every way, whether it's telling your friends about my work, whether it's supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash Alice Fraser or tweet, you know, any, any number of other things tweeting about it. I'll do a little plug now uh, for my various things that you can find me on if this Tea with Alice weekly thing is not enough of me. I also do a daily satirical news podcast set in an alternate dimension, which is extremely silly and a lot of fun, and I've been doing it since the 1st of January this year, and it's an enormous amount of work, but it's bringing me uh, an, an enormous... A sort of a, an equally enormous amount of pleasure. I also appear regularly on the Bugle podcast. My Audible documentaries, including my best-selling one on habit change, are all available as well. Um, Savage is available on Amazon Prime. The Resistance uh, is also available on Amazon Prime in some jurisdictions, but The Resistance, Ethos, and uh, various others of my work can be found on my website or on my Patreon um, so you can get them for free if you sign up on Patreon or you can get them for money if you go to the website or if you cannot afford them. Almost all of my specials are available as audio podcasts via either the ABC Comedy Feed or the Alice Fraser Trilogy. So you can find them on your podcatchers. If there's any of that that you weren't aware of, I'm glad to um, alert you of that. Otherwise, I'm just repeating stuff you already know, and I apologize. I'm going to get let you get on with listening to this podcast, and I will talk to you next week. You're having tea with Alice. Well, you can just jump in, and then we can go back. We'll figure it out. I can always edit yeah. it later. Uh, what's no, the really interesting thing at the moment? Well, the, you know... It's such a wonderful time to be grappling with so many different things. But one of the things that I find is colouring my experience at the moment is my reluctance to publicly discuss anything because of the climate that we now exist in. These There are so many things happening that deeply affect my industry and my work, but I don't want to get involved sometimes because I don't think my voice is relevant, needed. Um, other times because I'm just so afraid of backlash and I've had small experiences with backlash, minute, tiny, and that was enough to keep me up awake at night. And then there's the fact that I feel like so many people are just screaming about the same things but in different rooms 
Like we're not having the conversations with each other. It's like we've all become that passive aggressive thing you see in cartoons where it's like, excuse me, Alice, could you please tell the other party that I would like to say this? (laughs) And then they speak to another journalist and going, journalist, could you please pass on to Tegan that actually we think this? And it's just like, oh God, if everybody could get in the same room, but we can't because it's germy and disgusting. So there's two, they're like two different branches off that particular thing. There's so much in what you've just said, but the first one. <laughs> Sorry, that's why I was like, oh God, I'm thinking heaps lately. <laughs> no, that's, that's, that is this thing. Like we can talk about the, the backlash stuff afterwards and this, you know, first of all, I don't think the, I, I don't really necessarily believe the, uh, oh, is there, is, should I say something because other people are saying it? Is there space for me to say it? It's the internet. There is infinite space. Mm. If you are dominating someone's news feed and they resent that, they can unfollow you. People yeah. are in control of, the, of what they consume and, and making you responsible for what they're consuming from you feels sort of disingenuous to me. But in, in terms of, of what you just said about talking in different rooms, there's two things that I find really interesting about that. One is that, like, in terms of the free speech market, we are all now living in the kind of algorithmic equivalents of, like, a propaganda state. Mm. We, are, we are getting these very narrow bands. But then I'm also conflicted because, on the other hand, one of the things I hate the most is, ooh, look at this disgusting thing this person said who has six followers, I say to my 20,000 followers, thereby just spraying out the pollution. Amplifying it, yeah. So I don't... Yeah, it's really tricky. But you've you've been sort of now a quite public figure for some time. Well, I, I, I was for a little while. I think I would have agreed with that statement for a little while. I've really in the past... Uh, I would have say, said a few years, kind of just been, you know, coming inwards a lot more. I share less. What I share is far more curated now. Um, I do a lot more writing now and I've been developing things for a really long time and that's just the most insular both feeling and reality. Like you just sit in one room just plugging away at your laptop, sending it off into this <laughs> kind of abyss. It feels so I personally feel very, very different. Um, but at the same time, I know that I've got a, a, you know, on some platforms, a decent enough following that if I said something, there's a chance it could get some traction. But I just don't really. I mean, I used to use Twitter back when I was still a stand up. I loved Twitter so much because it was just this incredible tool for just trying jokes and really having to to solidify, you know, how you can get across a setup and a punchline in a really short space. I, I thought it was just the most marvellous tool to just throw material out there into the abyss and see what happens. I wouldn't do that nowadays, not at all. No, no, no. And this was the thing about, about stand-up and Twitter. In the early days, both of them had one thing in common, which was they were the minimum viable product for testing an idea. Yep. That, that you put it out and you would know... Uh, on Instantly. stage immediately or with yep. Twitter within an hour or two, whether it had legs. Mm. And I think for many stand-ups that's enough just to see if the idea works and then for other people they develop it into other things. But nowadays, you know, they, there's no guarantee that people give you the benefit of the doubt in terms and of I think it's- that it's a joke. <laughs> Yeah, well, I actually, it's funny that you say that. I just looked at, at a comedian who I, who I respect. They're just an absolutely lovely person. Had to write a message on their Facebook page just reminding their audience that what they write is jokes and that their job is a comedian. So they don't mean everything they're saying. And, of course, they're going to look for the funny angle in everything. But this person 
made a point of, 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 of the fact that more than ever after they post something, they get feedback, negative feedback from people taking what they say too literally and all that sort of stuff. And I understand it on one hand, you know, we live in this opinion economy now, like everything is about opinion. It's all about the hot take and getting your hot take out there really quickly. But that, that line where you keep like, nah, I was just joking. It's gone. It's absolutely gone now. Yeah. And I, you know, that line, the, I was just joking line is a dangerous thing because jokes are not, even just jokes are powerful because what they are yeah. is they're communicating an idea or they're, you know, there's plenty of bullies who in school will take you to pieces and then, oh, it was just a joke. I was just having fun, yeah. I, I'm not denying that it's a joke, but it's also a damaging joke. So I think there is the reality of that. And I, I think the problem with the just a joke thing is nowadays you don't know who's in the room. And I, the example I've used before is is say you're married to someone for 20 years and the way you say I love you to them is go jump in a lake. That's your, <laughs> between the of pair course, of you, yeah. that's what you say and it's how you express your love for each other and it's understood between you. But if you do that on a rep- reply all email, it has an unknown impact. And now there's no, there's really no space uh, other than person to person while there are no phones in the room. There's no space... Mm-hmm to be sure that you know who's, quote-unquote, in the room with any joke. Of course. I mean, I, I, my husband and I chat about that. Sometimes we'll just be saying the most heinous shit to each other and, and have that comment of if anyone overheard this, it would just, there would be no explaining it away. You would just have to, <laughs> you'd, you'd just have to go and jump in it. Like there'd just be no other recourse for that situation. And um and, you know, going back to Twitter a little bit, I remember also when Twitter first started, the aim was retweets, followers retweets. So it kind of started this, and I apologise for the gendering here, but this kind of edgy boy culture where mm. it was about saying the edgiest, most controversial, disgusting thing that you could. It was about just, it was about fueling that controversy fire and just trying to get an opinion out there. And I really felt that that was there for a long time and it has fortunately died off now people are I think in general more aware of what they're putting out there but it has meant that people like my comedian friend now have to go I do jokes like that's what I'm here for I'm a comedian it's jokes I know that I know the comedian you're talking about and they were in um they had a I think their first encounter with backlash was really informative for them in that Mm. they were very much part of the kind of uh, call out culture before that and then they did a joke um, that was read as exclusionary, which I think is a fascinating thing because it was a joke about a particular kind of person. But in, in you know, 160 characters or 240 characters, yeah, that's fine to me, but their audience perceived it as excluding another group of people. Mm-hmm. And you think, well, it can't be about everything, can it? I I once had a really great interaction. This was back when I was using Twitter as a tool for trialing jokes and I put a joke out there and just, it was, it was just wrong. And genuinely naively, I had not seen it from this other angle, even though it was glaringly right there. I won't even bring up the joke because really it was just not okay. And I had this woman immediately DM me going, Hey, 
I just don't know if this is your kind of brand of comedy because of this. And it was like a bomb went off in my head. I was like, oh my God, what have I done? Yeah. We had this most beautiful back and forth of her going, yeah, I just feel like I've gauged this from you and it felt a little bit wrong. And it's like, thank you so much. I just really appreciate it. It was such a positive interaction. And hmm. not only did I apologize, took it down immediately, it really woke me up to going, check it look at things from all angles before you put them out there. So for me, it was really positive. And I know that those positive experiences have existed for other people, but, um, but also, you know, we've, we've seen the negative They tend to be side. more private, right, as a general rule, yeah. if it's not that performative thing. If it, and, and, again, part of that process for you was that person going, I know you or I have a yes. sense of you. I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt. I think that's one of the things that is missing so much right now. Mm in how people talk to each other. Just the uh, people don't even want to give someone else the benefit of the doubt. They really genuinely, it's almost offensive to ask, well, you know, where are they coming from? It's, it's, which I, is a shift in the last five years, three years even. Yeah, it feels even shorter than that. It does feel like it's about three years, yeah. That asking someone to assume goodwill, on the other hand, on the other side of an argument, assume that you that they might be ignorant or that they have a different experience or that they mean well but are mm. uh, uh, misinformed or they have different value sets but they are essentially probably a good person. Even saying that now is considered bad, like that you're yeah. on their side or you're somehow excusing or defending or diminishing what they did, uh, the, the vastness of the wrong of what they did, which is somehow conflated with the vastness of the wrong of everyone who's ever shared that view. It's yeah. troubling. Speaking of which, who are you and what are you drinking? <laughs> <laughs> I'm drinking coffee. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I went for a cup of tea and they smelt dusty because I don't drink them and I was like, I don't know. Can tea bags go off? It's a genuine question. Can they? Um, only if they're kept somewhere damp. Generally what they do is they get less flavourful. Oh, it's winter and I live in Melbourne. My entire house is damp at the moment, so so I reckon there's a good chance that they have. But um, I am just drinking uh, Nespresso coffee from my pod machine, which I use exclusively now because I don't go out for coffee anymore. Um, Devastating for a Melbourneite. Pardon? Devastating for a Melbourneite. It really is. I've got my mask ready to go. So, you know, for supermarket visits and if it ever does get to crunch time, I'm, I'm, the mask is ready. I will put my mask on. Um, but I just I haven't been brave enough just yet. So I'm keeping that on me. Until I grow up, I cannot come into contact with other people. I mean, that is, that's totally fair enough. So you're in lockdown now? I am again, yes. How's that? How's it doing it for the second time? Um. It's, it's okay. I feel that on a scale of how a lot of people are feeling, I'm really lucky. I live with someone and I don't have kids. And only from what I'm gauging on social media, people who are living alone are, going, are doing this really tough this second time around. And people with kids who have the stresses of whether they're homeschooling or um, sorry, remote learning, learning and all that sort of stuff. That's that's really putting pressure on people. So I don't have that. Um, but on the same, like on the opposite side, I'm in the arts and that's still scary. <laughs> but um, I found that I've really grown to hate weekends because the one thing that is keeping me going is this ability to just keep working and keep trying to to pull in leads and do anything. And on the weekends, that just stops. So that's when I feel really just you know, lost actually, because I'm not that 
excited by watching TV and all the things I would have done on the weekends, like go to the galleries, they're not available to me. So weekends are dead time and I'm really happy that it's Monday right now. Yeah, I mean, I feel very similarly. Uh, by the way, sorry, there's construction work happening uh, slightly down the it's road. It's nice for once that it's someone, not me. I've got construction next door and it's been that for a very <laughs> long time. Well, yeah, you can't, you can't help the world that we're in. You can't go to the office. You can't go to a studio. So I think mm-hmm. my audience will be relatively forgiving. But uh, I am exactly the same as you, which is uh, I just throw, throw myself into work. The luckiest mm-hmm. thing that has happened to me this year was The Last Post, which is my daily satirical news podcast yeah. set in an alternate dimension and the, the just the overwhelming challenge of having to come up with 15 minutes worth of new material uh, a day has made my has kept me um afloat in terms of mm. the the terrifying thing at the moment is thinking any more than three months ahead you know i am yeah i am a lover of plans oh give me a spreadsheet i have i have one of those jumbo a4 diaries i love looking <laughs> ahead oh, i am really struggling right now but you know as you were just saying it's it's given me this focus that i've needed and There has been one, you know, incredibly silver, silver lining, which is that some of the stuff that I had been developing now, which just feels like for such a long time, some of the projects, three years minimum, probably way more because all the people I've been bouncing with or trying to pitch to, they're locked indoors too. They can't avoid me anymore. And suddenly some of these things have actually been in a little bit of steam behind them because damn it, you're trapped. All I had to do was trap them in a room. I I should have done it years ago. actually moving which has been nice and it's weird to think that I don't believe that would have happened if corona hadn't happened yeah which is it's nice to have a a silver lining or an or an upside for me it's you know getting I I did not intend to be here in Australia (laughs) I was here for six weeks I packed for six weeks I'm wearing the same clothes a lot which would be troubling except I always wear the same clothes a lot I think everybody's wearing the same clothes now as well. Or if they're wearing clothes, that's the that's the real bonus of the day. Will anyone ever wear jeans again? <laughs> no. That's a real question. Or heels, heels. Will anyone ever wear heels again? God, I can't remember the last time I wore heels. I wore makeup the other day because um, I had to do a Zoom pitch thing and so I wanted to look a bit profesh. So I did the the makeup that I used that I would have done daily. I did on this particular day, and my husband was like, "You look so different! Wow, what what's happened?" I was like, "Oh, yeah, just the tiniest bit of effort." And he was like, "This is amazing! I feel like you're a different person." <laughs> I uh, just have to let go of that for a while. I was doing these Instagram lives at first of all six days a week, and then now three days a week, and just putting on makeup for them, like. Yeah for half an hour and then taking it off again. But then the other day I realised that you can do live uh, filters on Instagram Live. <laughs> it's like, well, I'm never going to do that again. Now. I have lipstick on now and that feels very special, very special indeed. Well, it is. It suits you very well. Um, you. So you were saying you've transitioned from being a stand-up to uh, writing more. What made you do that? Was that difficult or was that sort of very straightforward as a decision? Um. No, it was it was really difficult because I had invested years and years into stand up, and stand up was also um, just a regular source of income for me that I'd grown to rely on. Um, but I realised that, well, I had so many realisations around it. I think the biggest thing for me was that I didn't love stand up, 
And if you're going to do it, you need to love it because there are so many things about it that are not fun and are really hard. And, you know, the anxiety for me was one of them. The cost benefit analysis just wasn't adding up in the anxiety I would feel in the days leading up to a gig. And then sometimes after a gig as well, just the really, really bad anxiety just wasn't worth the, you know, the few moments of joy I felt if I got a laugh, you know, it wasn't adding up. But I think you can push through all those things and you will sacrifice an awful lot if you love something. And I was backstage at a gig in St Kilda listening to Tom Gleeson and Dil Rukjaisinna chat about how much they loved stand-up. Just this really easy chat between the two of them about what it felt like for them on stage. And I was just sitting watching them, these, you know, these people who, who just give their life to stand-up. They're just so great. And I just didn't feel the same way. And I got up on stage and I was just like, no, I don't care that I'm here. I don't want to be here. And hearing them was really, um, was really eye-opening for me. Yeah. Well, and and two, just, you know, so many things factored into it. Yeah. There are two different elements of stand-up kind of cultural rhetoric within the stand-up community that I really don't match with. Mm. And the first one is I want to do this forever. And if you don't want to do this forever, you're seen as or you're perceived to be weak or quitting. Yes. That's a rhetoric that's yeah. never had a huge amount of power over me because it was the same in the law, doing, mm-hmm. doing corporate law in a massive firm, the same thing. is If you, if you quit, it's because you're weak. It's, if you quit, it's because you're, you, know, you can't hack it or you can't You couldn't it. hack it, exactly, yeah. When I first started, there was a female comedian who had just kind of exited the industry and the rhetoric around her was like, yeah, she couldn't hack it. You know, she, she wasn't tough enough to survive this industry. And I'm competitive. Like I boxed, like I, I am a very competitive person. <laughs> and in the back of my head that, you know, that had been there, what into you experienced you. in law gets there. And for me, the answer is, well, do I want to be a road comic when I'm 60? <laughs> no. Yeah. No, if I'm do still. you want to do the cruises? Yeah. I, that's not what, for me, stand-up is a means to an end and the, mean, the end is, Ideas, that's always what I've been passionate about is, is how you generate an idea, where you get an idea from and how you get that idea into words that are good enough that that idea goes into the words and then into someone else's head and then they have that idea. Mm. That process of, 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 and it sounds like really stupid communication, but actually, you know, what you say isn't always what people hear and, and trying to figure out that dynamic of how, how to bring people's minds into the same alignment mm. is the fascinating thing about stand-up and, and and is sort of the through line between all of the different kinds of work I do between uh, Tea with Alice and The Last Post and The Bugle and and, mm. and the solo shows and uh, everything. Uh, the second thing that is kind of part of the stand-up community, I guess, or the, the rhetoric of the stand-up community that, that tells you that you shouldn't quit is the there aren't enough women already Mm -hmm. well i had when i'd started to wind down i had a couple of room bookers really pushing me to come and do gigs and Mm. in both situations they said i really need you to come and do this gig because i don't have enough women on the lineup not i really need you to come and do this gig because i find you so fucking funny and i would just love you to be there And that really, that kind of stung. And, of course, that wasn't their intention. They're incredible people who are actually caring about the equality of a lineup. But 
that's I didn't I didn't want to be reduced to my gender in that moment. I wanted to be funny, and that was you know, I remember those moments and going, oh, this still doesn't feel right. But there, were, I mean, I even listened to your last episode with Sammy Shah, and um, he spoke about a kinship that he felt among stand up. He felt that this was this niche, this people that he could relate to. I I think a lot of people that I've met were absolutely lovely, wonderful top people, but I never felt at home backstage, on stage, in the clubs, in the clubs. <laughs> like I can't even say that. Um, it was just, yeah, it was, I am, I am, yeah, I, I, I just, I just wasn't that world. And, but the, the feeling of quitting was just so crushing of feeling this shame. And the, the irony is I don't think anybody probably even noticed that I wasn't there, but I just felt like people were looking at me and being like, oh yeah, she couldn't hack it. There we yeah. go. There's another one. Well, that's the dust. Um, you know, and then there was just financial risks, I suppose, associated with it. You, you know, if you stop doing stand-up, suddenly you're not really in that people who are considered for game shows and all that sort of stuff. It's your ability to do a comedy debate that, you know, be a really good corporate gig. Corporate gigs, gone. You know, you don't do stand-up. There goes, of course, I supposed to gig wonderfully, but no, you don't get considered for those things anymore. So I lost just a lot of income, but I, I kind of had to invest in 10 years in advance and go, if I need to quit this, I need to quit it and I need to properly quit. Also, because if you're that person who only comes back and does the occasional corporate gig, the shit and you know what I mean, then you're just not feeling at all. But um. Yeah, so I had to do it, but it was very, very scary. I mean, that, yeah, that is a scary thing. Did you have an idea of where you were going to, what you were going to be? Or, I mean, let's back up a bit. What, what about stand-up mm. attracted you in the first place? Well, I started doing sketch. I started doing sketch and through that was in comedy festivals and just started hanging around with stand-ups and you kind of are drawn towards it. You know, this kind of osmosis, it pulls you over. And we, you already touched on this, but there is an immediacy about stand-up. I write joke, I book gig, I perform joke, people laugh, boom, like that. It's all on me. And I liked the control and I liked that ability to dictate my own career. And when I was really throwing myself at it, when I chose to make it the, the, the central source of my creativity, I could see those, I could see myself moving forwards and I could see what I needed to do. Where I am now, so much of my career is out of my hands. I can write things, but then I have to wait for somebody to get back to me. I can pitch things, but the, the layers of waiting are just, you, you know that things take time, but then when you're really sitting in time, it's brutal. And I just feel like I have such little control. But when I am doing the work, I feel that it's the right work to be doing. So, oh, God, I hope it's correct because I've gambled on my future. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, uh yeah, so what was the thing? Oh, yeah, stand-up. And when a stand-up gig goes well, you feel like a fucking rock star. Like you really, really do. I had a couple of gigs that just, oh, you ride on them for days and you, you know, and in Australia we really do treat our stand-ups like rock stars. There is this, you know, stand-ups present the news, stand-ups, you know, commentate the sport. We are, there is a real, there's a real thing if you're a good stand-up. And it can be quite addictive. 
So this is fascinating to me because my experience of, or maybe the, the, the kind of stand-up I do, I never saw a future for myself in Australia. I never felt like I fit into the Australian scene. It was only when I went to the UK that I felt that there was room for me. And, and not even, that, yeah, that, that, that there was room for me to do what I wanted to do and rather than having, like there's a real skill set you develop in Australia, which is you have to be able to play any room in order to make a living doing stand-up in Australia, um, which most people who do stand-up in Australia don't make a living out of it. But if you yeah. want to have even a hope of making a living out of it, you have to be able to play a cricket club one day and then a theatre the next day and then, you know, you have to have this really broad range of, of skills or broad range of stand-up. Going to yeah. the UK meant that I could just do my stuff, the stuff that I wanted to do, which I think to a certain extent has spoiled me now facing the prospect of doing stand-up in Australia again. I'm sort of like... <laughs> I think, I, I mean, spoiled is interesting. I think that, you know, one of the key differences there might be that because I didn't love it, I never had that, that same specific passion that you did. You knew what you wanted to say. You knew what you wanted to explore. Mm-hmm. I knew what the, orders, what the industry wanted at particular times, so I wrote that comedy. I remember before I did uh, my boxing show, I looked at a lot of the female comedians around me. Um, this was before there was the great exodus to the UK, mind you, where everybody, all the great female <laughs> comics just went. Um, yeah. It just went away. I wonder why. <laughs> But I was looking at, you know, at who was there and went, okay, okay, so Felicity Ward's doing that, right? Celia's doing that, cool, Claire's doing that. You know, just had a bit of a think about it that way and went, none of them are talking about sport. There's not a lot of women talking about sport in a funny way. In fact, I think back then, honestly, there were hardly any. So I wrote a show about boxing and I did it partially. I mean, of course, I was interested. This was an interest of mine. I love sport, but I picked that show because I thought it was a smart move and I followed it up when I saw that it was a smart move with another show, one that even had greater commercial appeal in talking about Brendan Favola. You know, I did those things because I was looking at the industry in that way. Um, So there's another thing. There is a real reluctance for people to talk about comedy or any art as a business and if you are seen as a good business person... Um, that is seen as being somehow a lesser artist. Did you ever feel that? Well, um, I, I really liked the shows. I was really happy with the shows. I mean, they were good I shows. I saw the boxing show. It was brilliant. Thank you very much. So, no, I, I didn't feel, um, no, I didn't feel like I was a lesser artist in that, in that way. But then if you look long term, it didn't sustain me because it wasn't, you know, coming from a place of my, of my passion and my love. You know, so really in business terms, was it smart? In the short term, yes. In the long term, clearly not. I couldn't sustain it. Um, But I do think, that said, I do think if you are going to exist solely in Australia, you actually need to look at the industry for what it is as opposed to what you want it to be. You need to look at what availability there is for jobs. Where are you probably going to get your pay you're probably going to need to appeal to somebody who's casting for have you been paying attention. And I don't mean that in a bad way. The comedians <laughs> who are on there are the, they're the top of the pops. 
yeah. but you need to think about it. this is, and look, this could be really wrong. This could be really cold sort of like, listen, kid, if you want to make it in this industry, but that's just <laughs> what I think. And I think that if you can wear both hats, you've probably hit the jackpot. If you can keep some stuff for yourself and then also keep that really commercial, shiny Fox FM I'm just jazzing out to the music on a huge billboard on the freeway. If you can do both, I think you're, you're a genius. I couldn't do both. I couldn't do in many ways either. Um, but then I'm, I'm also in this ridiculously <laughs> lucky position where I've built very much my own audience and I can pick and choose because I can sustain myself with the work that I do uh, without doing any live work. So you yeah, notice that you start also, to turn I mean, down those shitty gigs in the middle of nowhere. But you've also, you know, you've got a special, like you've got a comedy special that's on the actual television. Like I've seen it. So maybe you are proof that I'm completely talking out of my ass because you have gone your own way. And that is, you know, you were doing, you, that's kind of the pinnacle for stand-up, isn't it? You've got your own special. Well, for me, I don't know if it was necessarily the pinnacle because I did a very old show for the special. It was sort of the closing of a chapter there. But the only reason I got that was because... Uh, or sort of a mix of things. I met Neil Gaiman at a weird storytelling gig and then I asked him to be on my podcast and then he listened to the trilogy and then he called me and said, oh, can I put your name forward to Amazon? Uh, so if you notice, That's and this is very inside baseball, <laughs> uh, well, yeah, it was, that, uh, it was very much the thing that my brother said when he came home from the, the first day of school. I said, what did you do at school? Because I had my eye operation, so we didn't both go to the first day of school. And he said, I met all the children and turned them into mm. friends. <laughs> which I think is probably my goal in life. Uh, but mm-hmm. uh, for me, that was very much uh, did not do that the normal way. And, again, this is going to be like I may well cut this out, but um, you might notice that of the ten specials that Amazon commissioned, every single one of the other one is a, is a token act. Yes, Yes. Um, Look, I don't think, you know, first of all, I don't think cut it out. I think that people need to understand that most of this industry is hard work. And then a lot of the times when you see that person who's somehow gotten over the finish line, it's because there's been a tiny bit of luck in the mix. That shit me because I hate luck. Luck is out of our hands. Um, But there is a small, no, it's not. There's a big element of who you know and who you can get that little extra push. And it's frustrating, you know. It really is frustrating because it takes power away from you. But I think it's, don't, don't you agree that it's sometimes just how things happen? I can think of countless people who it's like, oh, yeah, I started because this person shared a tweet and then it kind of exploded from there or this person passed my book on to this person or I just hear it so much. Yeah. Oh, by the way, when I said token acts, uh, token is a... Is a- is an agency. I'm not. I'm not suggesting that the acts were chosen for their. Oh, they're all token. Yes, <laughs> no, that's well, I have to, you know. And before we, I have to say that I'm with Creative Rep, which is under the same token banner. Um, so I Look, am. They're all one great of those performers. You know, they way. are all fantastic <laughs> performers, and you know, it's a, it's a great agency to be with. But it is a. It's one of those features of, you know, they were producing it, so of course they chose their own. Acts. One of the things I've noticed about everyone who gets an award or everyone who gets a, a, a thing, a treat, a casting, whatever it is, 
I find it very rare that I'll look at them and go, oh, they don't deserve that. Mm -hmm. You know, usually the people who get good things deserve it either because they're very talented or because they're incredibly hardworking or because they are unique in a particular way that they offer something that other people aren't offering. Yeah. What I always think, though, is that there are, you know, if you look at the Edinburgh Award or whatever it happens to be, that's a great show. There are probably 20 other shows who deserve it as much. Mm. So, you know, trying to balance out that thing of going, congratulations, you deserve this, with going, well, it doesn't mean no one else deserved it. It doesn't mean that, that you're the only person doing anything interesting or that your thing was so much better than everyone else's that we should all just give up. Mm. But maybe I just say that to console myself because no one ever gives me prizes. No, no, it's it's absolutely <laughs> it's absolutely the truth. Um, it's it's always that way, you know. Back when I was still doing regular comedy festivals, I can't remember who it was that told me to do this, but I've maybe I thought of it myself. No, probably not. Um, when you're going into a festival, you've got to write down what you want to get out of it. I want to have moderately full houses I want to end up with a really great show at the end I would like one review or you know what I mean you've got to have your list because as soon as you get sucked in to the actual festival buzz that machine suddenly all your own expectations go out the window and you're like yeah why the fuck wasn't I nominated for a Barry you know you, you might not have even been <laughs> aiming for that but suddenly no matter what you have is not as good because it wasn't the thing at the very top and awards are like that and they, they are both wonderful things and very toxic things and I agree, you know, sometimes you, you, you look at that and it always shows that you know absolutely deserved it. You don't get nominated for awards unless you've done something pretty bloody good. But you are right and, of course, there could have been, you know, 20 other acts that were as good, maybe even better, I don't know. But, yeah, how those, I want to say how the chips fall, is that the is Yeah, that the how thing? the chips fall. Well, I, used, I, I, I judged the British Podcasting Awards for a couple of years. I was one of the judges on, on the panel um, and that was very instructive to me. In the same way as when I cast my first play, I realised how, how that worked and you can't take it personally ever again if you've once done that casting process. But the, the, I, I auditioned people for a short film once. It was such an eye-opening experience. Yeah, it's not about how good they are. It's not about how hard they've worked. It's a, a mix of, of sort of a perceived potential and whether they match an idea in your head or overwhelm an idea in your head or whether they have good chemistry with the other people in the cast. Like, it's a whole different... But with, with the podcasting thing, we, we all, all the judges did marked the selections that we had out of, you know, out of 10 on a number of different vectors. And yep. then we got to a short list of about eight Mm-hmm. And that short list was, you know, on merit of, of sort of a cross-reference of, of people's taste. So I guess somebody could love something 100%, but if someone else loves it zero, then that's not going to be in that final list. So, okay, yep. already okay. you have this slightly interesting um, slant towards the selections, which is that they, they please the most people the most. Yeah, broad appeal, which generally means you're not going to be taking as many risks. Yeah, and then with those last eight... It was about what do we want to say about ourselves as, a, as a, an award? What do we want to encourage in the industry? Uh, well, this person has been nominated on a number of different things, so should we kind of go in with the rest of the judging or should we stand aside and, and give someone else a chance? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, if somebody argued really strongly for a selection, 
of that final eight and no one else contradicted them, that tended to come through. So one person on the panel loves you and no one else has very strong opinions, you will win. And that was just so, yeah, the fact that the, that the head judge in that conversation said, what do we want to say about ourselves? And then, yeah, it's not about the programs at all. It's not about the shows at all. It's about you. Yeah. Um, and then I even reflect on, you know, how I can view something entirely differently depending on the day I watch it, the time. I watched last night AGC's new War of the World series. Gabriel Burns in it. I watched the first episode of that. It's great. It's really, really good. And I can also imagine that there are going to be a lot of people at the moment who find it quite difficult to watch because it offers one of those end of the world scenarios that we're all living in a very small way, but we're experiencing what it's like when suddenly an external danger, a risk changes our lives potentially forever. You know, the hero is a virus. And the hero is a virus. Um, You know, and imagine if you'd been crafting a comedy festival show for a year and then suddenly something happens and we've all seen this where something will happen in the news and suddenly that show just feels really uncomfortable or not right all of a sudden. Imagine if that's the difference between a Tuesday and a Wednesday depending on what's happened and the Wednesday just happens to be the night the judges come along. I mean, there are just so many factors that can change who ends up at the top of that pile. Never recommend a movie you saw on a plane or after a breakup. (laughs) Exactly. But nevertheless, knowing all that, we go into these things and suddenly we all want the awards and it's very difficult to detach from that feeling as well. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I I think I can see that and I I understand that. I think I feel that to a certain extent, but I guess I've always, I never felt like I belonged Oh, I've never, I, in my whole life, uh, which was one of the nice things about going overseas is because you're not meant to belong. So it's mm. okay you to be an outsider. Official. It hurts more if you're an outsider somewhere that you ought to belong. Mm-hmm. That you feel like, you feel more, more of a failure. Whereas if you're just like, yeah, I'm, I'm, from, I'm from away. I'm not, don't worry. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So what are you working on at the moment? Uh, where can people support your work? Uh, at the moment, nowhere. Uh, <laughs> it's all just, yeah, it's all behind the scenes still, which is really scary. But um, I am working, I'm writing a book, um, which is really, really exciting. I think the last time you and I spoke, I had already started writing this book potentially. And I was, yeah, you, you spoke a, about it. I was really thrilled about it and very excited. Yeah, so um, I, um, it's just been, I guess what's the word, options? Maybe not. I'm not sure what the right word is, but a, um, a literary agent in New York likes it, which is really exciting because nobody in this country did. <laughs> oh, and, um, and so now I'm redrafting it and will hopefully one day get to hold that book because I've just been working on it for years. And basically the drive behind that book was that occasionally I like to write, sorry, read really trashy novels. I like to read, you know, I I like to call them the hot chips of the book world, just the stuff where you're like, I know that this isn't good for me. This isn't making me smarter, but oh God, give me more hot chips. You know, first of all, this like guilty, okay, this is what I wrote my undergraduate and master's, uh, sorry, undergraduate honours thesis on was genre fiction and the idea of a guilty pleasure and the way that mm. narr- the structure of the narrative in genre fiction plays a rhetorical role and the idea that just because something is fun means it's necessarily shit. Um, oh, well, you know, 
I know crappy books that you mean, and I read a lot of them. I have, uh, I am a hundred percent on board with you. So what I'm saying is, don't feel like you have to do that Australian thing of diminishing what you're doing. I know, but you look at the stigma around things like chiclet and stuff like that. All that, and and occasionally, you know, look at what we're all going through now. Uh, I don't always feel like reading the heavy stuff. Sometimes I just want to read something where it's just pure escapism. However, in a lot of those books, especially where there was a really strong romance narrative, I was also coming across a lot of stuff that I didn't feel comfortable with. Um, in the Outlander series, Diana Gabaldon's Outlander series, which you know women just absolutely love, on reading it a couple of years ago, rereading it, there was just a scene in there that made me feel really uncomfortable because it involved physical abuse between the male love interest and the female love interest. And it wasn't in my mind written in a way that completely condemned that. It was, there was an apologetic tone to it, the whole thing. I mean, don't even get me started on Fifty Shades of Grey and just how dangerous I think those books are for, for women. Um, well, and even in the like, juvenile format of it, the, the se- sexual or romantic dynamics in Twilight, which is what Fifty Twilight, Shades of Grey which is based on. Yeah, and the, um, you know, the, the bite being this analogy for sex. And even in the film, this one scene where they finally have sex and Bella comes out of this room and she's covered in bruises. Like she is, she's covered in bruises and that's meant to be a little bit hot. Like, Oh God, he's just, Oh, he can't, he can't hold back his strength, but Oh God, like that just, I just kept reading this stuff where men would suddenly be in a woman's bedroom at night. It's like, no, that's, you broke into her house. That's not okay. So I wanted desperately to write something that ticked all those boxes of just just being pure escapism and having <clears throat> excuse me action and adventure and just all this heightened really you know over the top melodrama but just where the woman had a little bit more control of her life and where she doesn't give up everything just because she falls in love the amount of women who just they just hand over their careers because they fell in love i was watching um 101 dalmatians with my niece the other day and Cruella Deville, if you can forgive the killing of the animals bit, she actually <laughs> at the very beginning of this film, I forgot the um, like the good actress's name is, but this good actress meets the good actor, and they um, within a day of knowing each other are engaged to be wed, which you know is not the message that I wanted my niece to be taking from that film. Let's roll then the dice into, on the rest of our lives, sure. Yeah, then she goes into Cruella, who's her boss, and Cruella laments the fact that she's lost another good worker to marriage and childbirth. And she's just like, so many women. I'm just losing so many good women because of love. And I was like, yeah, what's with that, Cruella? <laughs> like, why? Why is this threatening her career? It should not be an issue. And so I just, yeah, I've, I was driven by that, of just being so frustrated by all this stuff. And now it has just become this all-consuming project in my life and it's really strange. Um, um, but- if you want... So one of the things that happens on the last post is every four days, uh, uh, online romance maven uh, Dancy Lagarde publishes a new novel. And they are usually uh, historical romance detective novels with a supernatural yes. twist. Um, so I read this and I write these synopses of imaginary <laughs> uh, and I, they make me laugh so much. Because when I was a kid, I used to go with my brother to... Uh, on holidays with our family and and there was these um you know at the b&b there'd be like a bookshelf with all these novels and so we would read to each other the the mills and boons and the whole game was to try not to laugh 
And for yep. some reason, when I write these Dancy Lagarde synopses, I go fucking, like, I cannot, like, I, I never corpse. I cannot get through a Dancy Lagarde without laughing so because it's so, I love it so much and it's so dumb. Like, it's yeah. so. I have gotten so much joy from writing this, this stupid book of mine. I love it so much. Um, yeah. And, oh, that was another thing that reminds me, in Mills and Boone, all the women are virgins, always virgins. They're always virgins. They always have cracker first sex, like just top notch. And it's just so shit. And that's, that's actually carried through uh, in Fifty Shades. She's a virgin, Twilight. She's like everything. They're always just virgins, virgins. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that as I piff the word out. But um, <laughs> I didn't want my, you know, I didn't want my, my lead to be a virgin. Um, you know, just those sorts of things that have, you know, had really begun to frustrate me as I try to have my escapism. Mm. Well, you see these waves in the romance novel writing, which is they used to, ha- they used to, you know, the shift from them having sex after marriage to having sex before marriage. Mm-hmm. That's a, that was a big one. Um, so now, now they'll have sex before, but usually again, it's for the first time. And then you have the backlash to that. Oh, they had a previous lover or they were widowed, but the sex that they had with their previous lover was really bad. Really bad. Oh. Really bad or, you know, they were a bad person or a bad lover or just uninspired or they loved them but only in like a, a non-passionate way. And you, you see all these different, one of the interesting things to watch if you do read a lot of um, uh, romance novels or erotica or any of that, st- or fantasy novels even to a certain extent, to watch the, di- uh, the dialectic one of the things that's fascinating about comedy to me as well, you see one kind of joke or one genre and then you see people going, I'm not going to do that. And then they build a whole new thing and then you see the, the next generation going, well, I'm not going to do that. And then you see the next, and that's how things move yeah. forward. So I think it's really nice that you're, you're part of this next wave of, of romance novels or erotica or, or sort of fantasy or new wave of, of stories that, have mm. a different idea of how women how women can fantasize about themselves or about the world or about romance. Yeah, and I think I think that sort of stuff is so great and it's so fun. It's so wonderful when you can just curl up with a book and just just enjoy being somewhere else for a while. And of course that's you know it's kind of for me it's the whole point, but yeah, I, I just lost that for a while. So I've, you know, tried to bring it back in and you never know it might not happen um but yeah it's it's been a really nice exciting little thing that I've been doing and then I work very hard behind the scenes um helping out with loose units which is my husband's podcast he makes with his dad his dad was a former police officer in the in Sydney in the 1980s and um you know 70s and 80s and saw some pretty crazy things they've just moved on to discussing john's time in a funeral home because uh, paul's parents owned and ran a funeral home for several years and oh boy i'm learning things that i didn't <laughs> really need to learn uh but that's that's been quite educational as well um and then yeah there's just there's so many little projects that are bubbling away in the background and god i hope i hope one of them goes somewhere I am almost certain it will. I'm going to be back doing stand-up, baby. Oh, God. Well, that'll be fun if you see stand-up as a failure. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I've actually, sometimes it's it's really sad because I'll still have things to say or I'll have a joke and go, oh, God, I would love to see if that joke worked. But, yeah, there was just, 
I mean, there is absolutely no reason not to, you know, work on a 10 year cycle and do one new show every 10 years. There's only, it's only habit and custom that makes people think that they have to do a new show every year or, or whatever. Dangerous cycle. Yeah. That we get into in this country. Yeah. Yeah. Do a new show when you're ready. Do Melbourne. Yeah. Go to Edinburgh. I never did that. Anyway, (laughs) I was always too scared. And I kept writing about AFL footballers. Very specific, mm. very specific. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't think I ever really saw what I might do until I went to Edinburgh, or thought that there was room for it. I always felt like I was doing it against other people's kind of advice or wishes. I always felt mm. like I was doing stand up despite. <laughs> <laughs> what an interesting energy to fuel, like to fuel you throughout your industry. Uh, your industry driven by spite. Well, yeah, well, not not necessarily by spite, but certainly by a contrarianism. Or like, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe I, maybe I am going to talk about this or whatever it was. Yeah, do it. Yeah, but yeah, I never. I it was always pushed from my end and never necessarily pulled from other people. Mm. So I, I feel very, very happy to be where I am right now. Although, as you say, and to kind of bring it back to the beginning, it is. I am at. I'm at this point now where I'm not famous. I have some following. If I keep pushing forward towards this idea of, of exposure or fame or, or impact or influence, that changes what I can say and how free I can be. And, you know, even this podcast where I get to wrestle with ideas and, and be unsure and, and say uncomfortable things and examine them and, and say them out loud and go, do I believe that? Have I, do I stand by that? Where do I sit on this spectrum? Um, who do I feel affiliated with? Actually, I'm not entirely affiliated with the left because I find these things to stick in my mouth because, you know, why would you demand a right for yourself that you wouldn't be happy to extend to your worst enemy that's how rights work. Everyone has to have them. So if you want the right to shut something down by virtue of 4,000 signatures, then they have that right too. I don't like that. I don't like that. And how do I, you know, I can say all that stuff now. Do I want to stay where I am? You can never stay where you are. No, I think with your trajectory, you won't. But um, I think having more voices out there with people going, I don't know, I'm uncertain, I'm exploring, I'm unsure, I'm listening to opinions, I'm, I'm in a place where I am, I'm, I'm changing and I'm growing and evolving. I think those voices are really important because this idea as well that you have an opinion and that's your opinion and, and that's it, you know, and not listening and not it's asking not if somebody maybe. It's who you are. All of that. And I think that's, um, you know, it's, because we were trying to fit so much in tweets. I think that, you know, it's probably responsible for quite a lot that we had to keep on bringing our entire thought process into how many characters is it? 120 or something? 240 um, now, but like... That's right, it's bigger, yeah. Um, you know, I think if, you, if it's possible, get bigger, make your money. I, I, I love that for people. Go out there and make your money. Um, but if you can retain who you are while doing it, then that's, that's the big win. Yeah, I just regulate the goddamn social media, regulate them like the media companies that they actually are, find them for misinformation, hold them accountable. Mm. They are not the public square. They are presenting you with information. They are curating it with algorithms. You need to treat them like the media companies that they are 
sorry, this is a thing that I'm quite passionate about. This mm. is where law and legislation and regulation and treaties need to come into play. The government has to, has to, you know, it's not censorship to say that people are accountable for what they say. It's not censorship when, for example, Alan Jones on, on a radio show says something that incites violence or that is an outright lie and presents it as the truth. It's not, it's not censorship for him then to be fined. That's media regulation that is an important part of preserving the truth and holding people accountable for what they say. So how is, I mean, you know that Twitter and Facebook and, and Instagram are different, but how are they different? Are they that different? Well, look, yeah. I mean, I can speak about it from the creative side that they feel different from the user perspective, um, you know, I don't really interface with Twitter anymore. Instagram's a really friendly place for me. But I think one thing I'm trying to correct that I think actually I was doing because I was being a bit lazy um, was this thing of going, I'm a creative. I have to use social media. It's the only way I can, I can exist in this space. Now, it's not my fault. This is what the industry has become. I have to use social media. I have no other choice. And in recent months, I've been going, well, what would be far more interesting is to go, I am a creative. I don't agree with these platforms. So I'm going to work my ass off to try, even if it's not eradicating them entirely, but to reduce their impact on my career and to reduce the power they have over me as a creative to, to not feel as if I have to post a selfie every second day, because I realize that casting people look at how many followers you have on Instagram now. And that, that feeds into whether or not I'm going to get a role. I would like to try and reduce that, that feeling in my life and still succeed it you know it's another big gamble but I feel like I've been lazy and going Ugh, I'd love to but I'm creative so I've got to be on Twitter and it's like yeah but it's also because you really like scrolling through Twitter it is you know I try, my, my kind of halfway point or like bad solution to that insoluble problem is I try to use them as an out pipe rather than an in pipe mm -hmm. so yeah, I'll I've read that the sort of I'll go to the top of my feed I'll read the first five things without scrolling so I sort of I refuse to scroll on my on my Twitter so I bring it up on my phone I, it's at the top of the what's most recent the five most recent things randomly selected by my algorithm I guess and I'll read them and then everything else is just out output um, mm. uh, other than yeah. looking at it, the, the news kind of the news feeds so rather than reading my own feed I'll go to the news if I'm doing the research for the last post or the view. Yeah, I think at, at least monitoring your relationship with social media and taking more ownership over it is a really good way to do things. I'm certainly trying to do that a lot more, you know. And then I have little moments where somebody that I'm friends with from Whovians, like a Whovians audience member, occasionally sends me tweets and I'm like, ah, damn it, I didn't see that for a whole week because I didn't hop onto Twitter and this is a really nice person and I like just being able to send him a nice tweet back and, you know, it gets you with those little things. But I'll do it a week you know, later. Be like, oh, nice, I, I, this is only a week. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, great, I've waited a week until I saw this. That's, <laughs> that's, a, yeah. that's a, a positive thing, I think. The expectation mm. that you should have an immediate reply, I think, is is a false expectation. It's one mm. of those things of when you realise that you can just put your phone down for a whole day, take Sunday off. Yeah. Well, for me, I take Saturdays off completely and then 
you know, because my my mum has died, I no longer feel that need to have my phone on me in case there's an emergency. There's mm. nothing that can happen that needs me immediately. And just having that is such a freedom. It is. It makes a, it makes a massive difference. Um, I, should, I shouldn't keep you. Oh, one more thing, I guess, is that maybe, what was I going to say? I've forgotten. We'll have to talk about it like human beings. <laughs> I was going to keep talking, but I can't remember what it was. Um, I feel like I've got heaps to talk about. This is a disaster, but we must wrap it up. No, no, no. Um, Tell me one more thing. One more other heaps. Uh, and then I'll have you I, back. Well, just on social media, I had a really, really great experience last year. In I got to go on this kind of, what would you call it, like a junket it was a proper junket and I tagged along. I wasn't even invited. My social media following was not up to scratch on this thing, but Paul's was, my husband's. So I tagged along on this junket with proper influencers. These people's lives are their following. And it was so fascinating traveling around Japan. And this was the first time I'd ever been. And I was just in How love. Amazing. How amazing is Japan? It was just so incredible. And then looking over at these men and women who would go to a museum, a famous restaurant, you know, a beautiful temple, stand out the front, get their photo taken. Their team would then start Photoshopping it and they'd do that for a couple of hours and said influencer would then sit flicking through their phone. They, on a couple of occasions, didn't go into the museum or monument or whatever that they were at. They took the thing, locked it off and sat there looking at their phone. And um, I remember we were on this train journey that took us through the mountains outside of Tokyo. It was crazy because the company that took us over there were really great and they just, this junket was like, I've never been spoiled like this. It was incredible. Um, they they'd arranged that while we're on this, this train, this vintage train, um, that not only would we get, you know, full meals and the wait staff was so lovely. At one point we passed this small country train station and everybody who worked in there came out front with these little white flags and were waving at us. So me, because I get very excited, I'm like, oh my God, hi, g'day, hi, 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 just waving out the window like a <laughs> lunatic, just so excited, like, hi, everyone. Um, and then we looked over at one of the influencers and we're like, look, look at this. And she's like, I can't photograph it. So it didn't mean a thing to her that she couldn't capture that moment on a photograph doesn't, doesn't matter. It doesn't exist. And uh, it was just such a great eye-opening experience of going, these people who, you know, really actually experiencing the fact that on the surface, on their, well, not on the surface, on social media, they seem to have the most wonderful lives and they'd lost their ability to even enjoy the most enjoyable things, the food, the sights, travel. I mean, I live for travel and it meant nothing. So... Yeah, yeah if that enjoyment really, must be performative, then it's not enjoyment. It was so fascinating and it just really changed my relationship with social media. And what was also really interesting is while we were over there, while we were there, Instagram changed their rules to, how was it? Oh, people, other people couldn't see the likes on a photo anymore. Is that what happened? There was a big change in Instagram last year. Yeah, the likes weren't visible or something like that. And um, this was, that's like their currency. So their just entire job had changed because they can't, you know, brag about likes on particular images anymore. And what I found interesting is that nobody had read the terms and conditions of Instagram. Nobody knew that Instagram actually owns your photos when you pop them up, that they can just take them all away and you can't really do anything. And this is the entire backbone of their income, their livelihood 
and they just hand it over just like that without even, you know, reading the fine print. I just found it interesting. Well, I mean, it is fascinating because any other job you read your employment contract or if you you can't read a contract, you ask a friend who's a lawyer to have a look over it or to flag things. You try and read it. You don't Mm. just sign it an employment contract because that's your life. But with something like social media as a job now where it transitions from a a hobby to a job where you go from essentially everyone is an unpaid intern for Instagram up until they start to make money from it. Um, but there's no point at which all of a sudden you realise that that contract is relevant to you and you should actually have had a, re- a read of it. Yeah. You know, any other contract you can negotiate with, any, like any other contract, it's very rare that you have a contract that is either like you're in or you're out, you know. And it's such a, like they're really smart. I've got a friend of mine who I believe wants to be considered more of an influencer because um, I believe she thinks that it will really help bolster her creative work and and push that up so she will take photos and tag in brands or the companies of the clothes that she's wearing the food that she's eating the cafe that she's at she's advertising these brands for free and it's like it's it's just it's we're just making everything in our life you know what's like we're trying to turn everything into this commodity modifying yeah and and it's just so sad that it's yeah, it's so blatant and disgusting in a way. I'll have something nice happen and go, should I photograph this? It'd make really good content. Like it's fucked. And I'm just so, I'm really hoping that we can move away from it. I put sticky tape over brand names on my things because I don't you're want to a, advertise things. You're a bloody champion. Yeah. And so you should. Like we're all just advertising for free. We're just doing their work for them. We're schmucks. We're schmucks. So here's one yeah. last thing that I want to say before I uh, yeah. say goodbye, um, which is that I have this theory that all men should read romance novels at some point and all women should watch mainstream porn at some point just so you understand what lies the other sex is getting mm. about how That's sex good. and romance yeah. should look. What book, okay, what romance book would you say Men, I won't be like, so what porn should I go watch? But what, what <laughs> romance novel, what erotica or a romance novel would you recommend? Well, see, this is the thing. I, I think they should go as generic as possible. Whatever, you know, whatever Mills and Boons are floating around. I mean, Mills and Boons mm. is a fairly middle of the road. It's yeah. a kind of front page of Pornhub situation yeah, for yeah, yeah. Uh, romance novels. But it is, I think for many women these kind of books shape an idea not of how sex and sexual relationships and relationships are but of how they could be or how they might be or a kind of a platonic ideal of what, you know, that all relationships to a certain extent fall short of. You know, well, yeah, you, never, you, you about- never see in a romance novel someone going, well, actually a little to the left. You know? <laughs> <laughs> no, but also if you think about it in terms of pages, you know, probably 90% of the books, if not more, is set up. It's relationship. It's, you know, intellectual foreplay. It's yes. chatting. And, and that's it's important. Learning. That's important for men to understand, I think, about women. You know, and, of course, we're talking about very heteronormative things and there are unusual people uh, who don't have these ideas or don't encounter these books. But, yeah, it is. it, it has an impact on your idea of how things might be even not yeah. necessarily how they should be but how they might be mm. no it's really interesting i think it's a really good idea i i've reread 
Lady Chatterley's Lover, Chatterley's oh. Lover recently. So that one jumps to mind as potentially a really good. I also think it would be less scary for men because it's written by a man. You know, the thing like, you know, the JK Rowling thing and, you know, remiss to even utter that name at the moment, but, you know, she chose to go with initials instead of Joanne because men don't feel comfortable, as comfortable reading a book if it's written by a woman. Yeah, which is on. Mm. But, yeah, that, that is a good one to start with. I, ju- I just think, I mean, when I say maybe they should read one, I think they should read like five or ten. Just get an idea. They're great it. books. They're great <laughs> books. Really there's some really good ones. Just look up a best of list, best, yeah. you know, and then pick your own kind of, you know, what suits you. Do you like, do you, do you like uh, fantasy or sci-fi? Then go for a supernatural romance thriller. Or if you like historical stuff, go for a historical romance. Like Georgette Heyer was accurate to the point where she didn't use a word the day before it came into common parlance. You know, she researched her costumes and her events and her language and her vocabulary and her social norms like a legitimate historian. She is, you know, so if you're a kind of a military history guy, then read That's the Spanish Pride. That's what my mum used to say. <laughs> Back when mum was, you know, we were, we weren't, I wasn't really reading, you know, big chunky books. I'd say to mum, like, what's, what is that book, Outlander? What is that? She'd be like, oh, it's history. It's about the history of Scotland. It's just a history book. And then I finally got older and read it. It was like, you liar, you dirty, filthy, horny liar. <laughs> there is like three seconds of history in this and then it's about Jamie. What's his last name? I can't remember. Um, that's right. Oh, of course. <laughs> Jamie and Claire. Um, dirty liar. But, yeah, you I mean you can hide behind the history. You know, you're reading Playboy for the articles. Yeah. I mean, aren't we? And, but the great thing about Playboy was that back in its heyday, it actually did have great articles. Like it, it, it published things that would not have otherwise been published. Mm. So Interesting. So well, interesting. on that. On that, we should <laughs> go. Um, but uh, it was so nice to talk to you. I've missed having a chat with you. It was really uh, lovely to chat, chat with you. you. I'm going I apologise to, to anybody who... I was going to say people say that we sound the same. I don't know if we still do. I don't know either. I'm going to find out when I edit this. If I don't think we sound the same, but obviously we sound different in our own heads. Uh, so I'll, I'll find, I think the one thing that we have different is we say one differently. Oh, yeah. Uh, Australians say one, one, one. Yes. How do you say it? One. I say one, yeah. Yeah, you say you, say you come more one. over the top of it and I, I, yeah. I'm slightly down on my tongue. But other than that, I think, I don't know. I'm going to find out later. Uh, Tegan Higginbotham, thank you so much for having tea with me. Thank you, Alice.
do you know or do you not? This dolphin mistress we have got. Elsie Thompson, it is her name, and she helps the dolphins at every frame. Lousy rifle doll, lousy rifle day. On Monday morning when she comes in, she hangs her coat on the highest pin. Turns around for to view her frames, crying, damn you doffers, cry up your ends. Lousy rifle doll, lousy rifle day. And when the boss, he looks round the door, tie our ends up doffers, he will roar. Well, tie our ends up, we surely do, for Elsie Thompson, but not for you. Lousy rifle doll, lousy rifle day. Oh, Elsie Thompson is going away, is it tomorrow or yet today? We'll tie our ends up and leave our frames and wait for Elsie to return again. Lousy rifle doll, lousy rifle day.